Hello and welcome to another episode of the View from the Lab podcast. I'm your host, Andy Woods. In this episode, I caught up with Dr. Joe Foster, who is the director of an innovative STEM organization known by the acronym IRIS, which stands for the Institute for Research in Schools. Before becoming the director of IRIS, Joe held a variety of roles, both within and in support of state schools in the southwest of England. In this episode, we find out about Joe's career journey and her passion for supporting engaging science education for all the young people of the UK. The IRIS team aims to encourage independent scientific research within schools and colleges by its children of all abilities. You will hear about some of the amazing projects students have been involved in with IRIS support, as well as details on how your school could get involved with this fantastic organisation. There's lots to explore in this episode of the pod, so without further ado, let's get started and hear Joe Foster's View from the Lab. Hello and welcome to the View from the Lab podcast, Dr Joe Foster, welcome. Hello, hi, lovely to be here, thank you for having me. Not a problem, I know you're um, beaming to us to, to my laptop via the, uh, the wild Cornish coast, I believe, is that correct? That's right, yes. Uh, I live uh, about a mile from the coast on the very far end of uh, of Cornwall. Okay, very nice too. Now, I want to start off with having a conversation as I do with many of my guests about their love of science and talk about that for you, I'm sure, not too distant past of being a young, enthusiastic scientist, as I'm sure you are today. What was it really about science when you were, I suppose, as school age that got you um, fascinated by um, the subject? Yeah, so I suppose like quite a lot of young people, I started off my science career wanting to be a vet, mostly because I really loved uh, animals, which of course is not in fact a great reason to become a vet, it turns out. Um, but at the time, James Herriot was on the telly, the original version. And so I used to watch that on a Sunday evening and I used to think, oh, that would be lovely. Um, so I started looking into, you know, how you become a vet and realised science was going to be really important. And then when I hit secondary school, I realised that that everyone didn't feel the same as me about biology. So when I had biology lessons, it used to feel like I already knew the things, like it made such sense to me, like it all fell into place. Um, and I realised that actually I really loved biology, partly because I was good at it and partly because it felt like it really would help to, you know, if we could come up with some solutions about how to, you know, um, reduce carbon dioxide in the atmosphere or you know help plants to grow better and all that sort of stuff that it could be really helpful so I think um, a combination of you know James Herriot on a Sunday evening and uh, just loving biology was was where I started really with my science. So that um, I always think that um, I speak to a lot of people about this for some reason about Sunday night and the the theme tunes that remember remind them about Sunday night and, and whether that was a depressing thought or not whether it be the Antiques Roadshow or but for you obviously it was a positive experience because uh, all creatures great and small was on so that is a that is a good kind of memory from Sunday nights. So in terms of your biology, um, your fascination with biology, was that equally kind of supported by physics and chemistry or were they a bit of a drag on your kind of scientific kind of enthusiasm? Um, so interestingly, I loved all of them. I loved all of them, but I loved uh, I loved physics in a way that um, wasn't quite the same as biology, and that I had to work really hard with physics. So for my own children, uh, maths and physics seemed to fall quite naturally into place, whereas for me, I had to kind of really concentrate on that. But the place where I felt as though biology and kind of maths and physics were sort of at one was in chemistry so I didn't do chemistry as my career but 
I love chemistry. I absolutely love it. And I loved teaching chemistry as well. So there's this amazing lesson, which um, I used to look forward to every year around how you teach the periodic table and atomic structure and how those things go together, um, you know, explaining the patterns. And um, it's just so lovely because you see like little lights going on all through the class as you explain how one thing relates to the other. It's like poetry. Um, chemistry is the closest to art I think um of all the sciences although of course physicists would say differently I'm sure and there's a lot of beauty in biology but gosh chemistry um for me I I find that really fascinating so no I mean I love all the sciences and of course the most exciting advances in science at the moment are where those are where different sciences sort of combine so um, material science for example where we might be looking at aspects of physics chemistry biology um, design technology you know uh, so I think at the moment a love for science in general is actually really helpful rather than feeling like I pigeonhole myself into one particular place Okay, well, it's good to hear about this. You talk about creativity, because I think um, also from my experience as a teacher, often sometimes uh, students don't associate science with creativity, which I know we're going to get on and talk about the Iris project, which is, I guess, what you're trying to um, uh, bring to science uh, when it sometimes is, is, is lacking. Is, is, is How did you kind of um, make this clear to students? Because it is difficult, I think, when you are learning stuff in science, it seems, a lot of the time in, in, in lessons. How can we kind of, uh, you know, encourage that creativity in science, would you say? Um, that is a brilliant question. And of course, it runs alongside all sorts of other questions around things like teacher workload. And um, and of course, that is related to haven't got enough teachers that teach these subjects and what's the mo- what are the most important things to teach. Um, but something which I really love to kind of talk about uh, when people ask me questions about creativity in science and what are the important things when you're teaching science um, I, I think a lot about football. Okay. <laughs> it's an interesting segue. I go, I, yeah, please keep going. <laughs> don't worry. I'll get there. Um, basically, I spend a lot of time, I help out at my kids' football club. And okay. part, I, at the moment, I'm engaged in making bacon sandwiches, well, at least delivering bacon sandwiches. Someone marvellous called Lou makes oh, them. Sounds very important. Um, <laughs> but it used to be that I would spend hours on Saturday mornings just watching my kids in training. And one session I was watching them get excited because they'd done the drills and now they were playing a match right a practice match um and that's the bit where they all lit up they got really excited you could see you know genuine enthusiasm and excitement when they score a goal genuine disappointment when they don't do it but kind of a resilience to get on and do it again and I was thinking about how we teach science and it occurred to me that a a huge amount of the way that we teach science in most schools and this is not it's not the teachers to blame for this there's a whole combination of things and um, yeah, one of them being the amount of content in the curriculum. Um, we we te- teach the children the rules. If it was football, we teach the children the rules and then we would make them tell us the rules again and again. So that's like the facts and the content of science. And then when they did practical work, in fo- the football equivalent would be like repeating other people's drills. Like this is how Ronaldo ran across the pitch on the 14th of February, you know, 2011. Do that. Oh no, you did it wrong. You tripped over. No, do it again. Or oh, use Billy's example. He's my, you know, that's what we do because when they do practical work, we do it to kind of reinforce the ideas and the facts we've already taught them, reactivity series or osmosis, whatever it is. Um, what we don't generally do and what there isn't really a place in the curriculum for is 
excitement, creativity, and applying what they know, finding out something new. In football, that's a really exciting bit, and it is in science too. Now, you can't play football without knowing the rules, and you can't do science without knowing the facts and the knowledge. But if we want to encourage more young people into science, um, and in particular young people from less advantaged groups where they might have low science capital and feel like scientists aren't like them, um, we've got to let them play the game. We've got to let them feel the excitement and feel the tug of science instead of trying to kind of push them up a hill that really they're not that keen on going up. Mm. Now, that is an absolutely fantastic um, metaphor, I guess, in terms of the science, the science um, education. And I agree with everything you said there in terms of, uh, you know, that the, the need to you know, say, know the rules. You can't have the kids play a f- football game and they don't have no idea the rules they, and, and they've got to know the outcomes. I, this is the way you succeed to a certain extent. And that's true in work as well, in the sense that you've got to give people the ability to, to know what the, the desired outcome of the organisation might be. But the, the way you achieve that, there may be, you know, a thousand different ways in which you, you, might, you might get to that, that, that final goal. So it's very interesting. And I'm going to try and, I'm going to try and remember that um, as, a, as a good um, good story about explaining about organisations in general. I think it's a really good way of explaining it. So thank you, Joe. Um, and I wanted to ask you about, I, I assume that, um, and I kind of know this because I've met you, but you didn't become a vet in the end. You decided to go down the biology, just the pure biology route. Is that, is that is that right? And then you, um, is there any reason why you kind of veered away from James Harriet and driving through puddles? I was wondering if I was going to have to embarrass myself with this, particular <laughs> but I will. I mean, why not? Um, yeah, so I was really fortunate that I had some good advice when I was in school about careers. And one of the really good pieces of advice I was given was, you know, get experience in, in what you want to do. Go and try it out. You know, give yeah. it a go. Um, and that is advice I would give every young person who's considering a career in whatever area, to be honest, because so often it turns out it's not quite what you expected. Um, now, I so I got a Saturday job at a vet and uh, it was a very small vet. So it's just the vet and myself. So in the morning we would do surgeries uh, sorry you know people would come in with their animals and say you know his ear is itchy or whatever and we would help with that and then in the afternoons it would be uh, well first thing in the morning people come in late in the morning and in the, the early afternoon we would do actual surgeries like spays and things like that uh, and it turned out that I couldn't stay conscious when cutting happened. So every time I was supposed to be in charge of the anaesthetic, I was quite good at that. I was very diligent at, you know, looking at volumes and checking and things like that. But every single time the vet got his scalpel out and cut a slice in an animal, I fainted. Um, and the first month or so he kept saying, he was lovely, it was called Les. He kept saying, don't worry, Joe, it just take you a while to get used to it. And then as the time went on, he used to put a chair next to the operating table. So I <laughs> collapsed onto the table and then regain anyway after about six months of this he said you know what I sometimes people just can't do this and maybe it's not for you um I was still keen but actually I was shortlisted for Edinburgh University and didn't get in and I think it's probably a bit of a blessing not only for myself but maybe for all those animals who (laughs) (laughs) didn't get my care um but yes I chose biology at the University of York um and I chose it without visiting. Um, I chose it on for the most ridiculous reason, which was I had a friend called uh, Rebecca who'd gone to an open day there uh, and said it was great. Um, and I absolutely loved it. It was fabulous. Really enjoyed it. So it ended up being a good, good, good choice anyway. So that's really good. So um, I know that you, I mean, hearing that um, example of a football, you were destined to be some, some kind of teacher or explainer of concepts. Um, so... I mean, where, I know I've seen you speak speak um, at the ASE. You were talking about um, you did obviously do research as well within biology, and then I guess you'd you've done that. And then you know, at the end of your PhD, um, again, you've got to make decisions about where, where where's the next step. So, did you go 
straight into teaching? Did you do a bit of research? How did you kind of um, kind of float towards teaching eventually? Yeah, um, I got towards the end of my PhD and had a few different options. Um, so I had a kind of tentative offer from the Woodland Trust. So my PhD was in woodland ecology. Um, I was working for what was then the Ministry of Agriculture, looking at the farm woodland scheme. And so, you know, I had a real interest in woodlands, in biodiversity, um, lots of things like that. But the thing that I really loved, and it's funny because you say, you know, oh, clearly I was a teacher. Um, and lots of people said that to me as I went through like my university even when I was at school but I didn't get it myself until in the third year of my PhD as money was getting pretty tight I started tutoring um I started doing tutoring and I started doing what's called demonstrating which is basically going along to the practicals and supporting the undergrads with their work um and also I was fortunate to uh be one of the leaders for project work in the master's uh projects at the university and I just realized that this was what I loved, I love teaching. I really enjoy it. I love explaining things. And when, if people don't get it, you know, thinking of a different way to put it. And I really love that moment where the light goes on and people go, oh, I get it. You know, it's, it's an absolute privilege. You know, I, I love teaching. Um, that, the bit of teaching that involves, you know, working with students. And so I, um, I basically realised I was probably not a full-time researcher. I probably ought to explore teaching and then I got my first teaching job the following year um well that year I, I finished my PhD in July and started teaching in September wow and uh, I did the, the graduate teacher scheme so you teach right. while you do your qualification I see okay I was going to ask you so and then you so you went to teaching and what's your experience of UK teaching um in terms of I guess the types of schools you taught in um did you have a particular type of school you taught in or did you, had you had you had kind of a mix of environments and any, any reflections on that um, I have spent 20 years in teaching, um, almost all of it, which was in secondary state teaching. Um, I did spend four years of that. Uh, I worked as a teaching and learning consultant for um, what was then called Cornwall Education Development Services. So I used to go into that was an amazing I, I felt I feel so lucky to have done that job because there are 31 secondary schools in Cornwall, um, state secondaries, and I went into most of them, um, supporting them, supporting the heads of science and also like getting ideas and finding out what was going on. So a really amazing kind of short, well, long course in things that really work, things that don't really work and how you can help things to work in schools. Um, and there was something that actually during that time was um, it was told to me by my um, so he's my colleague but also a mentor like a really fantastic person called uh, Ed Walsh who's still very involved in the education community and he showed me this cartoon once and it's a picture of a uh, two boys and a dog sort of it's a, it's a cartoon three three images and the first one the w one boy says to the other I taught my dog to whistle and then the second one the second boy says I don't hear it whistling and then the third one the first boy says well I said I taught it I didn't say he learned it and I just thought, oh, my goodness, you know, that's such a metaphor for what can go wrong in classrooms. You know, you, you can teach the curriculum, but that doesn't mean it's been learned. Um, and uh, I think that was a really helpful thought to me because it's not, of course, only applicable to children. This is also applicable to adults, to myself. You know, what is it? What am I learning? How am I learning it? And it doesn't matter how brilliant a resource is, if you can't use it or if it's not being used, you might as well have not bothered. So this idea of making it easy, making it straightforward for teachers and for students to do something which is valuable, that has been kind of a guiding star, I guess, for all the things I've done since. Okay, so it's kind of, yeah, uh, 
And I think you, you kind of when I'm when I'm the ex teacher as well, and I think I do this too too often. It's almost I'm always checking for understanding too much. It seems a bit weird sometimes in the adult words world to ask people. So do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean by this? Or um, uh, clarifying things, but often nine times out of ten, they, they have misinterpreted what you said, or they're not quite sure about the instruction, and they're no different to the, the you know the, the, the children used to teach teach in school because we all have different pictures in our minds sometimes about what people are talking about, and I think um, uh, you know I've I've noticed I do it a lot, and I've noticed ex teachers that I work with it within uh, my um, professional life that some do it as well in terms of checking for understanding often, and that's the thing a good thing um, just just a, just a habit we've kind of learned, but um, it's something that is is definitely noticeable. And you've talked about Cornwall, so um, I was going to think Cornwall's quite, you know, obviously all areas are unique in, in the UK, of course, um, but um, the Southwest, I always think people have the impression of it's all, all lovely down there and there's no challenges and um, it's just go, everyone's going surfing, etc. But I assume that in Cornwall, you've, you've obviously got, you've, you've got experience of all those state schools in Cornwall and they must have all different challenges. I mean, what's your experience of um, uh, the difficulties you've got down in, in the Southwest that, 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 that maybe people wouldn't know about? Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right to identify Cornwall as somewhere. I mean, and, you know, that everywhere has its own unique challenges. But one of the things which I was really surprised, I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was surprised to learn was that actually the first school that I taught in down in Cornwall was in one of the most deprived wards in the whole of Europe. So not just in the UK, but actually the income, the joblessness, the, you know, everything about this particular estate where the school was um, was placed where the school was was extremely deprived and there are lots of reasons um for that you know there's kind of actually the, the very first school that i worked in was right at the very very end of the train line um, and a lot of people would get on the train just get off at the last stop um bringing whatever the thing they were running from you know the issues around that with them um the uh you'll be probably be familiar with the government kind of push on coasting schools but also coastal schools you know there is this kind of um so i before i moved to cornwall one of the reasons i love cornwall was that as a child we would holiday in cornwall and of course when you're on holiday everything feels different i'm sure a lot of your listeners have wonderful experiences of holidays in cornwall um but what can happen is that because the uh, the work here can be quite um cyclical so lots of tourism in the summer and then it kind of disappears in the winter but not only as a tourist disappears sometimes a lot of the other amenities disappear so it might be that there's not a you know a shop that's you know happening in a small coastal village except for in the in the summer i'm really fortunate that where i live has got a really thriving local community but that's not true everywhere so there's that but then there's also um we're a really long way from anywhere no that sounds sounds (laughs) ridiculous but i i can't tell you the number of times i've been waiting for something to be delivered i'll get a call from the delivery driver and they'll say i've just got into cornwall i'll be with you in 20 minutes and i'll say no we're still two hours away (laughs) it's long So there's a little bit of, um, it can happen that young people in Cornwall, um, this is by no means, by no means all young people, there are some fabulous opportunities here, but it can be that they can feel or be a little isolated from opportunity, not from ambition. You know, we've got so many fabulous, ambitious young people here, but it does mean that if you are in, for example, a more deprived family in a very deprived ward, at the toe end of a county which actually you know is is long and relatively underpopulated um 
that can mean that you have fewer opportunities and that's something that I'm really keen to to change. I'm ex- so excited at the moment because of course what we've got happening in Cornwall is an enormous investment in uh, the space industry. So loads of really exciting stuff going on there and we live just a mile away from Goonhilly Earth Station where all sorts of exciting um, satellite uh, data gets beamed in and dealt with so that I think is a is going to be key for the young people of Cornwall and their STEM careers because there are so many fab opportunities down here at the moment. Yeah definitely it's interesting, interesting to hear about that I mean my, I myself grew up on a south coast in Dorset in a, in a kind of uh, an area people would, would holiday in but um, uh, not, uh, not 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 a big not 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 Bournemouth big town. It was a small town and um, seemed very vibrant in the summer, but in the winter it was a kind of a desolate, windswept, um, grey um, area. And, and and I know that also uh, in terms of the challenges of teachers and, and getting staff in, in those those coastal areas as well is is, is a challenge. Which I see. I mean, I know Cornwall is an attractive place to live, but again, you, you you've got the difficulties, of course, of property prices I guess are still relatively high compared to, 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 to teacher salaries I assume so was it was recruitment challenging as well or was it okay so uh, I have so I moved out of school and I became director of Iris about th- um, three and a half years ago now um, but certainly while I was in senior leadership in a school I noted over the time that I was in it a real um, change in the Uh, number of applicants basically that we have for each position so certainly recruitment is a real challenge but actually you're right that the lifestyle in Cornwall so you talked about surfing and said you know obviously not everyone of course of course (laughs) I had a number of colleagues who were coming with wet hair in the mornings particularly in the summer who would get up at five have a surf come into school and um it's a cliche but actually I think that um trying to help teachers maintain that sort of work-life balance where they do have a kind of stress release and they have the opportunity to do that sort of thing is really really important so I think I I suspect as I say I'm not in schools in the moment I think that it is a real challenge but I suspect where people are or schools are able to kind of say we support people to have a work-life balance we support you to you know um, leave work on time things like that I think that that probably is attractive um, in terms of you know living here but uh, the COVID bump in house prices has been significant uh, and I suspect it's not just Cornwall so I suspect a lot of communities a bit like ours um, might be suffering in similar ways where teachers just can't afford to buy a house um, there and of course that's re- you know could be really problematic for schools where they really need fantastic teachers. Mm, definitely okay thank you for uh, for commenting on that I wanted to move on now to look at uh, the main reason your your, um, your raison d'etre at the moment which is IRIS I-R-I-S so as a former teacher, can you um, talk, talk me through that um, uh, acronym and uh, what does it stand for? And, what, and then we'll talk about, you know, what its big aims are, perhaps. Yes. So IRIS stands for the Institute for Research in Schools. And uh, it was founded on the basis. So it's founded in 2016 on the basis that young people, while they are still in school, so before they leave the university, can do real meaningful research and find out some really amazing things. That was the kind of foundation of the charity. Um, and as it has grown and developed, uh, we our mission has grown. And actually, what what we are what we aim to do now is we want every young person in the UK to have the opportunity to do real research while they're re- while they're still in school. And that is um, you know supported by one of the ambitions of the Times Education Commission, which lots of the listeners will have heard of. A group. A, 
large group of experts talking about education and how we probably need to re-look re at it, reframe it. And they made 12 recommendations. And amongst those was that young people should have the opportunity to do a real piece of extended research because they recognize all of the skills and attributes that are developed through that. So um, as a charity, we want every young person to have the opportunity to feel the excitement of real research. And at the moment, we focus on we're focused on STEM, but of course that crosses into lots of different areas. We had a student have enormous success on one of our projects last year. It was a DNA origami project and she was an arts student but she loved the idea of designing using dna so she she got involved and i think that is something that we really encourage and um i know that lots of teachers will have heard of um you know i don't know if we call it a similar organization talked about you know crest awards was something that i knew when i was a science teacher and how is how is your organization because they seem to be looking at similar areas of science in terms of project-based learning how would you say that iris is is, is different or is it is it are the outcomes or the, or the vision is different than the crest awards um any any comments on that yeah so as you all know um crest is part of the british science association uh they've just got a new uh ceo hannah who's fantastic and um we've chatted quite a lot about this uh, as you'd expect so the crest awards as teachers listening probably know come in different grades so you can get bronze silver or gold and you're quite right the gold award which is generally done in sixth form um they do an extended piece of work um a project and they have to invest a certain number of hours and they have to have an outcome um from that so in that way that's uh, that's similar um i think something that really and actually uh we know that some students do an IRIS project and they get their Gold Crest Award at the same time. So what's um, what's similar is that young people are doing real research and, and something which we may talk about later, I don't know, but our organisation is very keen on helping schools to develop a culture where young people do research as part of, you know, the idea that STEM, science, technology, engineering and maths is always developing where we need new ideas, we need young people to try those things out. So in a school where that culture exists, we hope that they'll be using crest awards and you know the royal society partnership scheme and stem ambassadors and all of the incredible resources so the crest awards are a brilliant thing for schools to do um, and some schools do them as well as iris and some schools do them differently i think maybe a big difference between crest awards and iris projects is that we have two types of iris project one is what we kind of call curated projects where they are um kind of boiling well not boiling the bag oven ready i don't want to say that but they're ready to go you know you can put them in the hands of teachers and students and everything they need is there um, and those projects are really exciting and really engaging and really develop skills. Um, at, but they very much are, um, you know, if the teacher knows nothing about, I don't know, um, let's give an example. If the teacher knows nothing about like the tree, trees and the tree canopy, they can still pick up Treezilla and run the project, no problem. Or if they know nothing about DNA, they can still pick up DNA origami and help their students to go through that project. Um, so we have those curated projects, which I think is really helpful for maybe teachers new to the profession, teachers who are really, really busy. Um, they're kind of ready to go. And I guess that's, um, the Crest Awards are, are, are quite student-led, I think. Um, so in that way they're different but in another way they're fantastic like they're not they're not competition to us they're a brilliant other way of doing this in your school 
Yeah, that sounds good. So you've got curators, you've got options that, they, that, that um, you know, teachers can choose and they're ready ready to go, as, as you said, uh, but there's obviously more open-ended ones if they they, just, they choose to do that. And I guess that um, in terms of age groups that you kind of pitch these at, um, I was kind of, you always have this in your mind about always oh, be a year nine thing to do or, or after key stage three or uh, because of the pressure of exams in year 11, you wouldn't be, you know, you wouldn't have time to do that or the school would be, you know, find it difficult to, to, to kind of encourage you to do that. Um, I assume that they're like from between 11 to 18, I guess. Is there a particular year groups you, you've found just by, you know, your own analysis, I guess, who is who is doing them more than other year groups? And is there a particular reason for that? Maybe I don't yeah, know. Uh, so you're quite right. Um, the projects are available to years from, you know, year seven right up to year 13 or 14. Um, so we have some students in college doing year 14. Yeah. But uh, the vast majority of students doing our projects are either in year 10 or year 12. Okay. Uh, so but the there is a there is a significant investment of time by the student when they do a, an RS project so we we think that each student has about 32 hours of engagement over the year right. so it's not a kind of a one-off an assembly and then a you know 10 minutes a week it really is quite a significant amount of time spent on it equivalent we think to something like the Nuffield placement scheme where um uh, well, actually, slightly less than our field placement scheme, but we know that it, the, in terms of the impact, the amount of time they spend actually doing stuff, for example, in the lab or on the computer or whatever, um, quite a lot of hours of, um, of of work involved. And we know because we obviously look at the impact each year on the students, we know that that has a real impact on their kind of their choices and their decisions and their feelings about science um, as they go off into university or apprenticeship and beyond. And how is, because uh, I've spoken to you off the podcast about the challenge always of these types of enrichment, especially you'd call, you know, enrichment opportunities for students, is is getting um, those students who you would say are are not the you know separate scientists or the, or the ones that um, absolutely you know are gunning for science and they know what you know they want to be that vet, they want to be that doctor, they want to be that that space scientist or, or what have you. Um, how have you tried to address that 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 kind of uh, problem of almost like encouraging the general scientists about getting involved in science, even though you know you may never, never do it again in your life after you've left you know full time education? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a challenge for these types of projects. Um, yes, it's a challenge, but also just a massive opportunity. So you'll have heard in the news recently, in fact, not just recently, but over the last few years, there's been this growing kind of chatter and talk um, about the UK being actually really exceptionally good at science um, and that the ambition to become a science superpower. Uh, and of course, if we want to be a science superpower, we've got to have an army of young scientists coming up through the schools. And I think at the moment, that's where uh, not only have we, do, do, do we need to build that kind of pipeline of talent, but also we're losing young people along the way um, who would bring an incredible diversity and, and new ideas into the profession. So I would say uh, one of the things that we do to, so it's not just about young people who want to go to university and, and do STEM. So firstly, maybe there are some who quite like some aspects of science, but feel like it's not for them because they've only ever done it in this one particular way, which might not be the way that they really enjoy. So perhaps they have felt it's a very academic and content heavy route, haven't had a chance to do something like that's really lit their fire. And so they think, oh, I don't want to go on and do that, even though they can have a science career full of that fire lighting amazingness. They haven't come across it in school, so they don't know that. So we hope to capture some of them. But also, not every scientist goes 
through university and gets a degree and then goes and gets a job and then you know works their way up actually there are hundreds of thousands of scientists who um, support technically and don't go up through the uh, that university route you can get a degree through doing an apprenticeship now so you know the smart money I might say I would say I've got three kids and I'm like university looks really expensive you know you can do an apprenticeship you can go on and do a a master's and a degree level apprenticeship and get your degree while working and being paid for it so you know it seems to me that that might be a very smart approach Um, and yet as a teacher in school even four years ago I didn't I didn't know you could get a degree level apprenticeship I I didn't know um you know that that was something that could happen and I think one of the things which we are trying really hard through our projects to do is to talk about not just that route into STEM which most teachers have gone through like let's face it that is how you get you know most science teachers for example will have gone through school been successful at science gone to university and done science and then gone back into teaching with that experience um those who have done an apprenticeship and then gone on to have a successful career after their apprenticeship don't go back into teaching so you know there are few i think um teachers of science who have done an apprenticeship and then come back and taught science in fact I think that is a route that might be becoming possible quite soon but what it means is teachers don't talk about apprenticeships and we need them to because they are a fantastic route into um, science careers and we need loads of people who follow that route you know that kid who absolutely I was going to say smashes practical work that's not what I mean you know (laughs) loves practical work has great spatial awareness, you know, really can see, you know, really good at problem solving. Actually, an apprenticeship might be the perfect route. They might be the one that discovers some fantastic new method for doing some experiment or, you know, these these young people, we're losing their talent at the moment and we can't afford to. So that's, I feel really strongly about that you know I think we can do better um in terms of those young people who yeah maybe you know this whole double triple science thing I think the massive disadvantage of that is that all the people who don't do triple science kind of go yeah I'm doing science because I have to but it's not for me and actually my teachers told me I'm not good at it because he won't let me do triple Mm. is that what we want to say to them I don't think so you know we there is immense talent in these young people and I think there's a a bit of a danger if we say you're only good at science if you're good at these aspects of it you know science technology engineering and maths are huge um and we've seen from some of the people who've been hugely successful you know i think of people like richard branson you know he didn't do well in school but my goodness <laughs> look at him now <laughs> you know those we don't want to lose that talent we need it yeah in a kind of i was thinking as you're talking about that you know the you know, problem solving aspect of science i think one of the most important things you learn um if you reflect on it is, is you know is, is the scientific method a way how how you can approach problems how you can control variables and that's just in your everyday life about you know making decisions about things and you know thinking about what you're going to measure in terms of the outcomes and whether that is a good thing to measure in terms of uh, um any life decisions you might make and the impact of that uh, so i think all these things are important and also you know i haven't even touched on the idea of our population needing to be liter- scientifically literate you know there are huge dangers in uh, a whole population or a lot of a population not understanding what data really is you know not being able to discriminate between the type of information which has been you know checked and double checked and a rigorous method has been followed in a type that you know your auntie susan has passed on on facebook it that is critical uh, because of the way our society works at the moment so having that sort of critical thinking is is also really important and the way that we ask students to do um science 
I, I think sometimes we can kind of try and teach them critical thinking by saying, right, here's an article from Wikipedia and here's one from somewhere else. And what are the advantages and disadvantages? But how much more powerful is that if they're actually trying to find out, you know, um, I've got an example of a student at the moment working on a, a project about water pollution. So they're trying to find out whether um, the, the impact of sewage pumping stations on the water quality in yeah. uh, in a river. So this student being able to look at, you know, what, what the, you know, when are the pumping times? What do they say? And then what does the data say? Like, what do, what can we see? You know, and, and who do we believe? And, and, you know, really being, you know, knowing that something that, you know, someone who saw something off a balcony is not the same information as, you know, something that you can see live in a satellite image. And why is that different? And those sorts of things, thinking about bias and, um, it's something that you can teach, but actually it's doing it that really helps you understand it. So that's where I think, you know, getting your teeth into a real piece of research, we have to apply these ideas is enormously helpful. Yeah, and I think, and actually, I know I've heard you talk about those river monitoring, um, sort of pollution uh, monitoring before. And since since I saw you speak at the ASC, um, I know there's been a national campaign looking at um, river pollution and uh, water companies, etc. So it just shows you that, you know, these seemingly um people would you know uh not not kind of dismiss these uh, kind of projects of that young people are doing and the impact and possible evidence that can be um, yeah. kind of, uh, produced by these, these these types of projects so that was one of them are there any another uh, any other highlights i was going to ask you about projects about any other ones that you really like to talk about so um yes there's one and i probably have talked to you about it before sorry because it is um my favourite, partly because I'm a biologist and partly because... That's okay, the podcast hasn't heard it, so let's hear it. (laughs) It absolutely kind of encapsulates what we hope to do. Um, So we have a project called Earth Observation where um, young people have access to uh, images from uh, the Sentinel satellite. So it's essentially images of all over the Earth and the students can choose where they want to look at. And um, they're very detailed images and they come with a browser, which is sort of interface that the student can use. And um, you can put all sorts of different overlays on it. So actually, um, even though I'm giving you an example, which is from the same project as the water monitoring one. So the water monitoring one is kind of one of the overlays you can look at things through. Um, We've got loads of other projects, but this one is uh, it's so great because it allows students to think of their own question and then investigate it so obviously we have lots who look at things like rainforest destruction and um yeah pollution and um, various other things but this particular group of um young women from sterling school which is a state school in scotland decided that they wanted to look at penguin colonies so they wanted they they looked at um at imagery from the uh, south pole and they were looking at uh whether they could spot penguin colonies and it turned out that that actually that was very difficult to spot but what they could see was um if they put a particular filter over the satellite imagery which they had to write themselves by the way using python coding so they had to learn how to do python coding so they learned how to do that and then they put it was very it was simple code but nevertheless some code um which then changed the uh the light the uh, spectra of the light bouncing back and they it transpired that penguin poo comes up in a different colour if you put this particular uh, filter over the images. And what they did then was they looked for, so essentially because penguins move pretty slowly and apparently poo almost all the time, or at least as a collective, you see like this kind of smear across the ice. The ice, the lovely pristine ice. <laughs> kilometres, right? Runs for kilometres and then a patch where they stop. Um, what they did was they correlated the um, 
the patches of poo with known penguin colonies of emperor penguins. And it transpired that they discovered um, a couple of colonies of emperor penguins in places where there weren't any recorded. So they made con so these children, these students were in year 10. So they were 15 years old. They contacted the British Antarctic Service and said, hey, we've been doing this project, this research project, and we've correlated, you know, we found they told them told them about the method. And um the British Antarctic Survey confirmed that in fact they were previously unknown colonies of penguins. Um, and that now, you know, they went out and checked and they were there. So they were real, uh, previously unknown. So firstly, that's a new discovery for science, right? We didn't know penguins were living in this place. They were. The British Antarctic Survey is now aware. That's fantastic. We were all excited, you know, really brilliant. And then about, I don't know, well, where are we now? I don't know, a year and a half, two years later, I recently read a, um, an article in the news and it was a British Antarctic Survey article where they had adopted a new method of identifying penguin colonies using uh, satellite imagery and they have actually identified a lot more like 16 more colonies and this method is a method that was devised by three 15 year olds at a school in Scotland through one of our projects that is brilliant I love that you know real science in school you know they can that's the they're the moments which I think, you know, as a teacher, you're like, oh, my goodness, you know, it's it's not a, a massive jump away. You know what what people are doing in real research. It's not lack of talent that means that young people aren't doing this. It's lack of opportunity, you give them the opportunity and they can do the most incredible things. Yeah, no, it's it. And they've got, you know, obviously, of course, um, you know, great, great imagination and, and, you know, thinking about things that adults, the way that adults wouldn't think of things just because of, you know, the, you know, the age they are. So it's... Um, it's uh, it's really kind of heartening to hear that the, the, those kind of stories that, that that come out of these these projects. So in terms of um, uh, school, so obviously when, when any of these types of um, kind of projects come come about, or, or sorry, this organisation, I'm quite always quite interested in the how. So if you're a science teacher listening to this, you're head of science, or maybe you're just an NQT, and you really want to get your school involved in this uh, what are the practical steps do you have reps do you have a form to fill in what how, how do you get this thing started in your school yeah brilliant question so um it's as straightforward as we can make it basically um it's free it's totally free okay so go to our website so if you look for our website it's www.researchinschools.org um, okay. and there's a you can find out lots more about our projects we've got kind of a front-facing bit of the website which is available to everybody and then when you join us so there's a button that says join us um, you fill in a form and then we will get in touch with you we have got um, representatives regional schools engagement leads we call them who go into your school and we'll chat to you about how to do it and sort of hold your hand if you need them to in terms of you know the first session or whatever or they can do it by zoom um, but as soon as you join um, you have access to all of the project resources and also we run uh, three big conferences every year where young people can bring their research and share it with other young researchers so and they're not little you know they're, they're full-on events so for example this year in London we had uh, our conference in a big conference center uh, 450 people there and on the stage young people sharing their research in the way they would in an academic conference with you know academics teachers um other researchers people from industry a really fantastic opportunity to kind of share research and collaborate so um 
so yes all of that uh we make available uh for free for state schools as a bursary to attend the conference as well so we really want to encourage schools to to get involved and what we hope is you know as an ex-teacher I know that the kind of most precious commodity in school is is time and um, time is a really, really important um, thing that we consider when we put our projects together. So what we hope is there might be teachers. So, for example, an, uh, uh, an early career teacher who might want to run some sort of enrichment and say, oh, I, I want it to be really impactful and worthwhile. And if you want to know what the impact is on young people and on teachers, please do on our website. Have a look at our impact report. The impacts are fantastic. Um, I want it to be impactful, but I need it to be straightforward. And I've got an hour a week what could I do you know an IRS project might be perfect for that um so yeah go to our website have a look click join in fill in the form and, and someone will contact you about next steps so um that sounds like a um super straightforward process and people can get involved that's really good um I was going to ask you before you went um and I, I suppose you've kind of been talking about because my last question was about you know what is the one thing you'd like to change about the education system at the moment, I guess in the, the UK and your experience. So certainly that I kind of think where you're, you're literally being the change you want to see in the world and you are uh, having an impact on, on children's science education by being part of the Irish project. So you're really impacting that. But is there any kind of general things before you go that you you feel like, yeah, it'd be nice if we could still do this. What, what are the kind of key changes you'd like to see over the next 10 years? And it could be anything, it could be about schools, it could be about teacher training, it could be about... Um, Whatever you, whatever you like, any kind of things that that, that uh, kind of bring bring a bit of passion. Because I know you're a passionate person, but um, any things that you would implement if you were the education secretary? Yeah. So, as you would expect, I feel pretty strongly about this. Um, I genuinely believe that young people are our most important asset as a country like they're our resource right they are the next 100 years of the country and we have to invest in them and help them be the best they can be because it helps to resolve so many other issues in society around inequality um you know wealth distribution all of those things so for me education is absolutely critical absolutely critical so what i if i had a magic wand what i would love to do and i recognize this is a bit unreasonable but you have kind of given me a free reign um i would like education out of politics okay i think we should all have a really rational evidence-based discussion about what works you know in countries where education is really working what are they doing and then we should agree as a nation our young people are important to us and we will invest in them. And this is what we want education to be. And then that's what happens. And there's no flip flopping when different governments come in and change the plan and change the thing. You know, it's so important. We can't keep letting people mess about with it. You know, let's go evidence based. And we've got some brilliant, brilliant evidence about what works from like the Education Endowment Foundation, the Sutton Trust. You know, we know, but we need that investment to, to make that happen. So if if I was in charge and I had a magic wand and I guess you would also say a magic money tree but I would argue this is the most important thing that we could invest our money in um I would put it into an education system that absolutely is the bee's knees and uh, we'll probably also incorporate as you would expect some uh some real research maybe involving bee's knees I don't know but um yeah education system out of politics investment evidence-based um and then grow our economy and our society from there because our young people deserve the absolute best and at the moment not everybody's getting it and I really wish they were 
well, I hope hope I hope this vision will become a reality. Um, it's a you know, it's a, it's a question I often ask my guests, and it's really good to get that kind of um, uh, strong feeling about evidence evidence based, which is what um, us, I guess, as ex science teachers, we want to see the evidence and and as you say, perhaps uh, depoliticize it as much as possible and make it you know valuable experience for young people, because as you say. They're the ones that are going to be driving the innovation as the as the years roll on. So it's really important. I think Iris is a really important important part of that. Um, so thanks for joining me today, Joe. Appreciate your time um, from uh, the wilds of Cornwall. Um, I'm sure we'll catch up again soon. So uh, thank you and goodbye. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Bye, Andy. There we have it. Another episode done and dusted. Thank you so much for listening today and to Joe for joining me. I would encourage you, if you are a school teacher, to check out Iris's website to see if you can start some innovative projects with your learners. I know that real research carried out by students will do wonders for their confidence and engagement in science. There are plenty of previous examples to find on the Iris website for inspiration, so please do check those out as well. Okay, that's it for me for today. It's time for me to find my next podcast guest. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you on the next one.